I call this uh, hearing to order. Uh, let me welcome all of you to the sixth hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific, and International Cybersecurity Policy in the 116th Congress. This is our second subcommittee hearing on North Korea in this Congress, demonstrating the importance the subcommittee places on this critical national security issue. Let me begin by noting my sincere disappointment uh, by the administration's decision to not provide a witness for today's hearing. Uh, despite repeated requests, uh, this committee has the lead oversight role on the conduct of our nation's foreign policy, and the administration is obligated to testify in a public setting in order for us to effectively fulfill our constitutional duties as a co-equal branch of government. Rest assured, I will continue raising this issue with our administration colleagues. It should now be abundantly clear to even the casual observer that summit diplomacy over the past 18 months has failed to convince Kim Jong-un to abide by international law, but has only lessened the pressure on Pyongyang to denuclearize. Our sanctions policy has been inconsistent, which has left significant enforcement gaps that North Korea and its enablers continue to exploit. The cancellation and downgrading of our military exercises have weakened our defense posture in East Asia, which has only emboldened the madman in Pyongyang. Uh, time is not on our side to deter the growing threat from Kim Jong-un. It is time to go back to Plan A on North Korea, the successful policy of maximum pressure that was adopted early in the Trump administration, but since abandoned in an earnest effort of diplomatic engagement with Pyongyang. We need renewed focus to achieve the complete, verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization of the Kim regime, to enhance our military presence to deter future aggression, and to strengthen key U.S. alliances in East Asia. First, we, immediate, we must immediately enforce sanctions against Pyongyang and its enablers. Now, these are sanctions that are already legislated under U.S. law. The administration should be prepared to seek a new United Nations Security Council resolution in the event of another ICBM launch. President Trump stated on June, 18th, uh, June 2018 that he was holding off on imposing 300 sanctions on entities in hopes of diplomacy succeeding. The Treasury Department should roll out these designations without delay. Congress should pass the Gardner-Markey Leverage to Enhance Effective Diplomacy, or LEAD Act, which is a pro comprehensive <clears throat> excuse me, bipartisan bill to economically and diplomatically pressure North Korea and its enablers through the imposition of sanctions and other policy measures. The legislation also calls on North Korea to immediately return the USS Pueblo, a U.S. Navy research ship illegally seized in international waters in January 1968 and is currently displayed in Pyongyang as an anti-American propaganda attraction. Second, we must immediately enhance our military posture in East Asia. The United States and the Republic of Korea should resume full-scale bilateral military exercises similar in size and scope to those before summit diplomacy began in 2018. We should swiftly conclude negotiations on the U.S. ROK Special Measures Agreement, the SMA, which would provide strategic stability on the Korean Peninsula and strengthen the U.S. ROK alliance. Now is not the time for excessive demands that only serve to exacerbate tensions and uncertainty within the alliance, which only benefits our adversaries. <clears throat> The administration should redouble efforts to promote trilateral security cooperation between the United States, the Republic of Korea, and Japan, which has suffered badly due to renewed tensions over historical disagreements. We should continue to make clear to Seoul and Tokyo that painful events of the past should not preclude cooperation on shared threats, most prominently the threat from North Korea. Third, we must double down on diplomacy to isolate Pyongyang internationally. The administration should re-engage in intense global diplomatic efforts to persuade other nations 
to diplomatically and economically pressure North Korea to comply with international law, including downgrading U.S. diplomatic and economic relations with any country that fails to take appropriate measures with regard to North Korea and reducing or terminating U.S. assistance to any country that fails to take appropriate measures with regard to North Korea, consistent with international law. And finally, the administration should intensify, not downplay, efforts to highlight Pyongyang's human rights abuses at the United Nations and other appropriate international fora. The administration should also belatedly appoint a dedicated special envoy on North Korean human rights issues at the State Department as authorized by U.S. law. The Congress will stand with the administration to achieve the goal of a denuclearized North Korea that is prosperous, is no longer a threat to its neighbors, and does not abuse the human rights of its own people. But unfortunately, we remain very far from that goal today. It is time we finally wised up to the Kim family playbook of mendacity and deception that has spanned generations. United States law with regard to North Korea, established through Section 402 of the North Korea Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act of 2016, is clear that there can be no sanctions relief for North Korea unless the regime makes significant progress toward completely, verifiably, and irreversibly dismantling all of its nuclear, chemical, biological, and radiological weapons programs, including all programs for the development of systems designed in whole or in part for the delivery of such weapons. Any comprehensive deal with North Korea must ultimately meet this high bar established in law. Today, we have a very distinguished panel of experts with us to chart a path forward. And with that, I will turn it over to Senator Markey for his opening comments. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you so much for this uh, uh, very important hearing. <clears throat> Towards the end of last year, we thought we might now be talking about Kim Jong-un's promised Christmas gift in the form of a long-range ballistic missile test, or worse, a nuclear test explosion. We can count our blessings that the Kim regime did not turn to either type of provo uh, provocation. However, our collective sigh of relief may be short-lived if President Trump and Kim Jong-un, both known for erratic behavior, experience a public breakup in 2020. In his New Year address, Chairman Kim kept the door slightly ajar to diplomacy while warning he would soon unveil a new strategic weapon if talks with the United States do not produce a deal to his liking. The stakes could not be higher. And that is why I am dismayed that the Trump administration has yet again failed to produce a single official to testify in open hearing on the North Korea challenge. The administration's choice to snub this snub subcommittee while making a top official available to participate in a think tank event tomorrow shows open disdain for our oversight role, as well as for the American people, which we represent. Nonetheless, I echo the chairman in his praise for our three distinguished witnesses joining us today, uh, two of whom, Dr. Terry and Ambassador King, completed their studies in Massachusetts, the brain state. So we thank you for being here. Specifically, I look forward to hearing one how can we jumpstart stall talks with North Korea one year after Hanoi to guard against a return to fire and fury? Two, how can we work to plug the leaks in the multilateral sanctions regime, leaks that fuel North Korea's illicit weapons of mass destruction programs? And three, how can we give voice to North Korea's oppressed and nearly one in two citizens who go to bed hungry every night? Diplomacy has produced modest gains, 
Chairman Kim has not fired an intercontinental ballistic missile or conducted a nuclear test for over two years. Additionally, the remains of dozens of foreign U.S. Korean war veterans are back home to be put to their final rest, and tensions at the demilitarized zone have thankfully cooled. However, since Hanoi, North Korea has more material for nuclear weapons. Since Hanoi, North Korea has more confidence in their sea and land-based ballistic missiles that put the continental United States, our allies and partners, in their crosshairs. And since Hanoi, North Korea has rattled our allies by conducting more short-range ballistic missile tests, of which President Trump unacceptably remarked that he has no problem with them. That is why President Trump must put pen to paper and codify that the United States will not tolerate any ballistic missile test by North Korea of any range. <clears throat> and he can show he values the contributions of South Koreans rather than knocking their Oscar-winning film Parasite by abandoning his attempt to shake down South Korea through a renegotiated special measures agreement. The President can also position his diplomats for success by calling for Senate consideration of the LEAD Act reintroduced by Senator Gardner and myself last June. The LEAD Act will strengthen our diplomatic negotiating position by targeting those entities that have aided North Korean uh, sanctions evasion. And we must not return to the charged rhetoric of fire and fury. A war, much less a nuclear war, would lead to unfathomable loss of life. Threats are not an alternative to a negotiated agreement. And that is why I plan to reintroduce my No Unconstitutional War Against North Korea Act in the coming weeks. Congress must stand up and speak out against President Trump taking any action against North Korea that mirrors his unauthorized assassination of Iran's Qasem Soleimani. In war and peace, and in all things, the President is not above the law. The United States Congress must play a role in these issues because they affect every single person who we represent. So I thank you, Mr. Chairman, again for this uh, very important hearing, and I yield back. Thank you, Senator Markey. And uh, Ambassador King, I'll begin with you. But Senator Markey, I'll just point out, not everybody can get into Colorado State University, so I understand what <laughs> happened here. So uh, thank you. Uh, Ambassador King, we'll begin with you. Uh, our first witness, uh, obviously, the Honorable Bob King, who currently serves as Senior Advisor to the Korea Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. From November 2009 to January 2017, Ambassador King served as Special Envoy for North Korea Human Rights Issues at the State Department, where he led U.S. efforts to press North Korea for progress on its human rights, U.S. humanitarian work in North Korea, and the treatment of U.S. citizens being held in the, nor in north, in the north. Excuse me, Ambassador King, thank you for your service. Uh, thank you for your tireless advocacy, uh, and uh, we're honored that you're here before this committee today, and uh, you may have, please uh, limit your remarks to five minutes, but you may proceed. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Markey, members of the committee. I appreciate the invitation to appear today. In light of North Korean nuclear and missile testing, its militant policy statements, it's important, however, that we not lose sight of human rights in American policy toward North Korea. I want to thank you and the committee for your leadership and reauthorization of the North Korean Human Rights Act of 2017. This was the third time that this key legislation was extended by Congress since it was first adopted in 2004. 
In this strong era of partisanship, it's noteworthy that the bill was approved by unanimous consent in the Senate and by a vote of 415 to zero in the House. The programs authorized by this act are important for policy on North Korea. One of the most important provisions is the creation of the Special Envoy on North Korea Human Rights Issues, the position that I held for seven years. The reauthorization requires the appointment of a Special Envoy, and I regret that there has not been a Special Envoy in this position for three years now. Unfortunately, the administration has virtually gone silent on human rights in North Korea. In his first year in office, the president pressed North Korea on human rights. In September 2017, his first speech to the UN General Assembly, January 2018, at the first State of the Union address, almost 10% of that speech was devoted to North Korea. He told Congress, quote, no regime has oppressed its own citizens more totally or brutally than the cruel dictatorship in North Korea. In the gallery and acknowledged were the parents of Otto Warmbier, the American student who died a few days after he was returned in a coma following his imprisonment in North Korea. In the gallery and also acknowledged was a North Korean uh, defector who lost both legs trying to find food and survive the North Korean famine. Five months later, President, uh, the president met with Kim Jong-un in Singapore with pomp and publicity, but little substance. Human rights were not on the agenda. In January 2019, the president delivered his second State of the Union address. North Korea was mentioned only briefly in passing when he announced that he would meet in Hanoi with Kim Jong-un. At the Hanoi summit, which ended early, the only human rights issue raised was the question of American student Otto Warmbier. At his press conference, the president said Kim Jong-un told him he had no knowledge of what happened to the American student and, quote, I will take him at his word. Since the collapse of the Hanoi summit, sincere efforts by the U.S. to resume dialogue with the North on denuclearization have not been reciprocated. Abandoning our principles on human rights did not lead to progress on the nuclear issue. In the last three years, we have backed away from the United Nations, which has been our most effective means to press the North on human rights. In 2013, with US strong support, we've pressed for the creation of the Commission of Inquiry. That report has become the basis for much of what has been said and known about the human rights situation in North Korea. But we have also withdrawn from participation in the UN Human Rights Council. Our leadership is lacking in the Security Council to raise the issue of North Korea uh, as it should be raised in the Security Council as it was raised four years in a row, including in 2017 when Ambassador Nikki Haley was our UN representative. We need to resume our efforts on North Korea human rights in the United Nations. I was asked to make comments briefly on the overseas North Korean workers, particularly those in China and Russia. First of all, this is a major source of funding for North Korean nuclear weapons and missile programs. Workers are not paid directly and a significant portion of their salaries flow to the regime. Second, North Korean workers are not fully and fairly compensated for their labor. It's a human rights issue. They're forced to work long hours in difficult conditions and they don't receive pay comparable to what local workers received. Two of the largest users of North Korean labor are China and Russia. 
Both countries have an interest in limiting North Korean access to nuclear weapons and missiles, but China and Russia benefit economically from cheaper North Korean labor. The U.S. has to work with both countries. The vast majority of international trade for North Korea passes through China, and without the active support of Russia and China and the Security Council, it will be very difficult to enforce economic sanctions against North Korea. It is a concern also that South Korea has backed away from criticizing North Korea on its human rights abuses. The current South Korean government has followed a policy towards North Korea that's similar to what we have followed in the United States over the last two years. Uh, the North Koreans, uh, the South Koreans uh, have reduced, for example, increased funds for North-South cooperation while cutting funds for human rights. Aid for defectors has been cut by 31% in the last budget. Unification Ministries Human Rights Foundation has been cut by 93%. The Unification Ministries database on North Korean human rights abuses has been cut by 74%. In November 2019, the South Korean government did not sponsor the annual resolution in the UN General Assembly criticizing North Korea's human rights. South Korea had sponsored every annual UN resolution for the previous decade. The United States' failure to press aggressively on North Korea human rights abuses is a great disappointment. The United States should be a shining example on the Hill, a beacon of hope on human rights. Unfortunately, we've hidden our light under a bushel. We have been silent on important issues of principle. And still, we've made little progress on North Korea on our security concerns. Our foreign policy toward North Korea should reflect our commitments, our national commitments to human rights, those commitments on which this nation was founded. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ambassador. Our next witness is Mr. Bruce Klingner, who currently serves as a senior research fellow for Northeast Asia. Before joining Heritage, Mr. Klingner served for 20 years at the Central Intelligence Agency and the Defense Intelligence Agency, focusing on North Korea and regional issues. From 1996 to 2001, Mr. Klingner served at the, uh, Deputy Division Chief, as, as the Deputy Division Chief for Korea at the Central Intelligence Agency. And from 1993 to 1994, he was the chief of the CIA's Korea branch. He previously testified before this subcommittee on June 25th, 2017. Mr. Klingler, glad to have you back in this committee. Thank you very much for your service and look forward to your comments. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, it is indeed a, an honor to be asked to speak before you on such an important matter to the security of our nation. Uh, the U.S.-North Korea denuclearization talks are stalled. Special Envoy Stephen Began, like his predecessor, uh, predecessors, tried valiantly to engage with North Korean counterparts only to be repeatedly rebuffed. Pyongyang declared it is not interested in working level talks nor in additional summit meetings. And once again, it is North Korea that rejects diplomacy and negotiations. Euphoric claims of breakthroughs made after the Singapore summit were premature. Contrary to claims of success, the Trump administration has made no progress on North Korean denuclearization. The two sides remain far apart over the definitions of seemingly straightforward terms, such as denuclearization and the Korean Peninsula. Instead, North Korea continues to nuclearize. Pyongyang continues its nuclear and missile programs unabated, and the regime continues to produce fissile material for more nuclear weapons, as well as expanding and refining production facilities for missiles, mobile missile launchers, and nuclear warheads. In 2019, North Korea launched 26 missiles 
That's the largest number of violations of UN resolutions in one year by the regime ever, and unveiled five new short-range ballistic missile systems that threaten South Korea, Japan, and U.S. forces stationed there. While U.S. officials wait by the phone for Pyongyang to call, they're also waiting for the other shoe to drop of the next provocation. At the end of 2019, Kim Jong-un announced he would no longer feel bound by his promise to President Trump not to conduct nuclear or ICBM tests, a promise that was irrelevant because North Korea is required under 11 UN resolutions not to do nuclear tests or missile tests of any range. Instead, Pyongyang has threatened to demonstrate a new promising strategic weapon system. Over the decades of negotiations with North Korea, the U.S. and other members of the international community have offered economic benefits, developmental assistance, humanitarian assistance, diplomatic recognition, declarations of non-hostility, turning a blind eye to violations of U.N. resolutions, non-enforcement of U.S. laws, and reducing allied defenses, all to no avail. Despite the failure of all previous denuclearization agreements with North Korea, the U.S. should continue diplomatic attempts to reduce the North Korean nuclear threat. However, the Trump administration should resist entreaties to lower the negotiating bar to achieve perceived progress. President Trump should reject calls for relaxing sanctions in return for only a partial flawed agreement that does not include a clearly defined endpoint of North Korean abandonment of its nuclear and missile production facilities and arsenal, as well as rigorous verification protocols. In response to North Korean intransigence and continued defiance of the international community, Washington should rethink its self-imposed restraints on military exercises and canceling them, uh, though the coronavirus now may supersede that uh, recommendation. America's self-imposed military concession did not lead to diplomatic progress, nor reduce the North Korean nuclear threat, or the missile military threat. Instead, the regime continues to, to conduct large-scale military exercises of its own. The United States and South Korea have canceled numerous military exercises, as well as reducing the size, scope, volume, and frequency of additional exercises. Doing so risks degrading allied deterrence and defense capabilities. The exercises are necessary to ensure the interoperability and integration of allied military operations and ensure readiness to respond to North Korean attacks. The Trump administration should also end its self-imposed constraints on enforcing UN resolutions and US laws. The Trump administration, for all its declarations of maximum pressure on North Korea, has only anemically applied sanctions since the Singapore summit. Maximum pressure has never been maximum. As you mentioned, Mr. Chairman, President Trump declared he would not impose sanctions on 300 North Korean entities. Uh, those were violating US law in the US financial system. The U.S. Treasury Department deferred imposing sanctions on three dozen Russian and Chinese entities providing prohibited support to North Korea. The White House has taken no action against a dozen Chinese banks that Congress recommended be sanctioned for money laundering for Pyongyang. And in March 2019, Trump reversed the Treasury Department's minimalist step of targeting two Chinese shipping firms. Law enforcement should not be negotiable. Washington must up also uphold human rights principles. Downplaying North Korean human rights violations and embracing a purveyor of crimes against humanity to gain diplomatic progress runs counter to American values. The U.S. is also risking undermining critically important alliances by asking for exorbitant increases in cost-sharing negotiations. Excessive demands presented in a combative manner are needlessly straining relations with allies at a time when we should be standing shoulder to shoulder in the face of common threats. The administration's monetary demands are at odds with its strong advocacy of alliances 
as detailed in the national security and national defense strategies. Alliances are not valued in dollars and cents, nor should alliances be money-making operations for the United States. Excessive monetary demands degrade alliances that are based on shared values and principles and goals into mere transactional relationships. America's men and women in uniform, including my son, a United States Marine currently serving his second tour in Afghanistan, are not mercenaries. The U.S.-South Korean alliance is forged in blood during the Korean War. Its enduring motto is Kachi Kapshida, or we go together. It must never become we go together if we're paid enough. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Klingner. Our final witness today is Dr. Su Mi Terry, uh, who serves as Senior Fellow and Korea Chair at the Center for Strategic International Studies. As you can all tell today, CSIS is well represented on the panel. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Dr. Terry. Uh, Dr. Terry joined CSIS in 2017 as Senior Fellow for Korea after a distinguished career in intelligence, policymaking, and academia following, uh, follow, following Korean issues. Uh, prior to CSIS, she served as a Senior Analyst on Korean issues at the CIA from 2001 to 2008, where she produced hundreds of intelligence assessments, including a record number of contributions to the President's Daily Brief. She has received numerous awards for her leadership and mission support, including the CIA Foreign Language Award in 2008. From 2008 to 2009, Dr. Terry was the director for Korea, Japan, and Oceanic Affairs at the National Security Council under both Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Welcome, Dr. Terry, to the subcommittee. Thank you very much for your service. Look forward to your comments. Thank you, Chairman, um, for this opportunity to uh, appear before you on this important hearing. First, let me briefly address the prospects of resuming negotiations with North Korea, which is pretty dim at current, uh, present time. North Korea's current position reflects little appetite to return to diplomacy. Kim has vowed to maintain North Korea's nuclear threat while promising the world would witness a new strategic weapon it will possess in the near future. All the while issuing a warning and preparing his people that North Korea will have to go through a long, unprecedented period of difficulties with the United States. Kim did, however, leave a very small opening uh, for diplomacy when he stated that he's willing to freeze or reduce uh, his nuclear program if conditions are met. The chief challenge for us, however, is the fact that North Korea is highly unlikely to agree to any sort of agreement with the United States that does not involve maximal sanctions relief. Um, at least direct dialogue and President Trump's three sit-downs with Kim Jong-un uh, have at least cleared up a, or confirmed a clear picture of what it is that North Korea seeks. In the near term, it seeks to secure significant sanctions relief from Washington and international community. And of course, North Korea's long term remains patiently waiting out uh, for the world to accept North Korea as a responsible nuclear weapons power. At both the Singapore and in the Hanoi summits, um, the US dangled the prospect of economic development to show a possibility of a bright future that could lie ahead for North Korea if only it denuclearized. At the Hanoi summit, U.S. side also floated the idea of ending or declaring uh, the end to the Korean War and exchanging liaison offices with the North. But North Korea has made it crystal clear that what it cares about is sanctions relief. The question then is whether it is in the U.S. interest to pursue an interim deal that would at least freeze or roll back the North's nuclear program, even if it means we have to give maximum 
sanctions relief to North Korea. Arms control experts uh, currently debate on the utility of a freeze of North Korea's weapons production and whether it is worth for the U.S. to pursue an element of a deal that would include North Korea pledging to cease further production of fissile material, put a limit on existing stockpile, and closing down Yongbyon nuclear facility in return for significant sanctions relief. My own view is that this would be, in theory, perhaps worthwhile objective to consider if and only if North Korea provides an inventory of its nuclear program, meaning facilities, we weapons, fissile material, a roadmap for implementation, along with allowing international inspectors into North Korea to monitor all declared nuclear facilities, something that North Korea is highly unlikely to agree to. Otherwise, we'll be trading um, sanctions concessions, a key leverage that we have in return for nothing or very little. Absent a declaration of North Korean nuclear program and the entry of international inspectors in there, there will be no way to know if North Korea were to covertly continue developing nuclear weapons or not. Thus, as long as the Kim regime remains defiant, I strongly believe that the U.S. and partners must not rush into such a deal with premature sanctions relief. In fact, we must continue to pursue diplomacy backed up by sustained economic and political pressure on the North. The goal is to continue to intensify, uh, continue and intensify full, sustained, comprehensive sanctions enforcement to defund North Korea's nuclear and missile program, targeting not only North Korea, but also enablers and business partners using economic and diplomatic means. Using the strategy that brought Iran to the bargaining table as a model, we should expand pressure on North Korea's money uh, launderers, facilitators, and enablers. In my written testimony, I mentioned that we are currently well positioned to build on existing North Korea uh, Nuclear Sanctions and Enforcement Act. Um, we should also, I think, give more power uh, to 94 U.S. attorney's offices to enforce sanctions law. In December 2017, for example, the chief district judge in Washington, D.C. ordered three Chinese banks to comply with federal grand jury and statutory subpoenas to their North Korea-related records. That was the first time a U.S. federal court has ordered Chinese banks to comply with subpoenas regarding suspected North Korean money, uh, money laundering. Such a strategy, if enforced diligently, has the potential to close a hole in U.S. sanctions enforcement by scaring China's banks, Chinese banks, into enhanced due diligence and stop helping Pyongyang gain access to our financial system. These efforts should be pursued in conjunction with prioritizing human rights abuses in North Korea and expanding information penetration campaign, uh, which I will be happy to discuss further after our opening remarks. I would like to also discuss alliance management um, that my colleague just brought up and burden sharing issues further during the Q&A. As you are aware at the moment, tensions are running very high uh, between the United States and South Korea over the Trump administration's indeed excessive demand that Seoul increases payment by more than 400%, which is greatly straining our alliance relationship uh, with South Korea. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Terry. And uh, we'll begin with uh, questions from the panel. Um, when the Obama administration had approached North Korea, um, they had developed uh, what was, I guess, uh, called a doctrine of strategic patience, which could be described, I guess, as a um, as a approach that would just ignore, keep out of sight, out of mind the uh, 
um, violations of international law, U.S. law, as it relates to North Korea, and we would just wait uh, patiently for Korea, North Korea, excuse me, to to change its mind and change its behavior. Uh, maybe the sanctions would work to affect that change, but uh, regardless, the outcome was the same. Strategic patience uh, failed uh, to materialize uh, any kind of a, a new result. When the Trump administration took over, they began applying uh, maximum pressure in part because we had already changed the law under President Obama away from strate strategic patients toward one of maximum pressure, uh, beginning with the first time ever mandatory sanctions on North Korea through the North Korea Sanctions Policy Enhancement Act. Uh, and so we began that pressure uh, onto the regime, which led to a number of what seemed to be at the time uh, results uh, that, that looked like they were heading toward the right direction uh, of denuclearization. Um, last February, uh, we'd already signed the Singapore uh, Joint Statement and held a second summit in Hanoi. That's over the past a couple of years. The president chose to walk away from a bad deal at Hanoi, but that choice was not without costs. In the meantime, North Korea has continued to process fissile material for nuclear warheads, uh, to improve its short-range missile capabilities, uh, to devise new means of circumventing sanctions. In exchange for those three things, the United States has halted or reduced joint exercises, tolerated short-range missile tests that threaten South Korea and Japan, refrained from designating additional sanctions violators, refrained from enforcing those sanctions that are already in effect. Uh, so Mr. Klingner, I'll start with you. Dr. Terry, if you would like to uh, add to this question. Um, Ambassador King, I don't know if this is something you want to join in on or not, but feel free to. Uh, in your opinion, are we better off today uh, than we were the day before the Singapore uh, summit was announced as it relates to North Korea policy? Uh, no, sir. We face a greater North Korean nuclear and missile threat than we did before. Um, you know, the, the common denominator in, in all of the previous failures with negotiations with North Korea has been Pyongyang's refusal to abide by its commitments, by UN resolutions, uh, and its cheating. So, you know, no political party or administration has a monopoly on good or bad ideas uh, with North Korea. Any U.S. policy should be a comprehensive integrated strategy using all the instruments of national power, often referred to as dime, diplomatic information, military and economic. Uh, I think both the strategic patience policy and the maximum pressure policy have those components, but really they've been, uh, been weakly implemented on all cylinders of the engine. So as we wait for North Korea to come back to negotiations, we need to have the pressure to not only enforce our laws and impose penalties to those that violate them, uh, but to constrain proliferation as well as the inflow of prohibited items for their programs. Uh, if you don't uh, sufficiently apply the pressure, then you're undermining the potential for a diplomatic resolution. Thank you, Dr. Terry. To, I, I would say in some ways, I completely agree with my colleague here, but in some ways I might say we might even be worse off to, in, in this sense. I think in 2017, President Trump, minus the fire and fury that no one liked, that, that bloody nose option was uh, excessive. But I think maximum pressure policy was effective and was working. We, we saw for the first time, really, China implementing sanctions in the fall of 2017. Uh, my only wish is that we should have tried that a little bit longer before we too quickly return to symmetry and diplomacy. Whether we are trying diplomacy or, or maximum pressure, it has to be consistent for some number of years. I think in 
in Iran's case, it took three years of maximum pressure. So we too quickly, quickly transitioned to symmetry and diplomacy, and now look what we, what we got. Even though Kim, Kim Jong-un had stopped the ICBM and nuclear tests, he has also gained in the last several years. Uh, he has normalized his regime. We have completely forgotten that this is a man that has been purging uh, how many elites now. He has killed his uncle. Uh, he has killed, assassinated his half-brother, uh, but now he all of a sudden looked normal. Uh, he went to China uh, was, uh, three times. Uh, even Xi Jinping has visited Pyongyang. He has now with, met with Putin. In Singapore, he's taking a selfie of himself. Now we have this, we have normalized him, we have normalized the regime, and human rights have now taken completely a back, uh, back seat. So on one, on one hand, while we made no progress in terms of denuclearization, we had, did not curb nuclear and missile program, yet that Kim has succeeded in normalizing the regime and normalizing uh, himself as a, as a leader. Ambassador King. Uh, one of the things I think we need to be careful about is assuming that human rights is something that we can do when we have the situation solved. I would argue that human rights is part of the solution to the problem. One of the greatest difficulties in North Korea is the unresponsiveness to the North Korean regime, to the interests and needs of its own people. And human rights is something we need to do to press the North Koreans in that direction. Access to international information, knowledge about what's going on outside North Korea is essential if we're going to put pressure on Kim internally to move in the right direction on these things. So it seems to me that ignoring human rights, which is unfortunately what we've done over the last three or four years, uh, is not solving the problem, but contributing to the difficulty of coming up with a solution. Thank you, Ambassador. And I mentioned those things that I feel that uh, the United States has given up on. We've given up, halted or reduced joint exercises. Obviously, the coronavirus may have a, a different impact going forward, but a completely different reason. Um, tolerated, the U.S. has tolerated short-range missile tests that threaten South Korea, Japan. We've refrained from designating additional sanctions and violators. We've failed to address, uh, administrations failed to address uh, human rights issues as they should, uh, refrain from enforcing those sanctions already in effect. Uh, am, am I missing what North Korea has given to us? Uh, they've asked for relief, relief, relief. We've given all these things. North Korea, what, what, is, what have we received in return from North Korea? Mr. Klinger. I'd argue we really have received nothing. Um, as Dr. Terry pointed out, you know, we've given much to North Korea. I, I have no problem with negotiating or meeting with you know, foreign powers that we, we don't like uh, or that we're fearful of or we see as threatening. Uh, that's why we have diplomats. Uh, but you don't want to give away things uh, without achieving your objectives. There are three pillars to the maximum pressure and engagement policy, of the three pillars of the pressure, sanctions, deterrence and diplomatic isolation. Unfortunately, the administration has undermined all three of those pillars, as, as you pointed out, with the military exercises, the, the lack of uh, enforcing sanctions, as well as now uh, embracing a purveyor of crimes against humanity, describing him as honorable and loving his people. So in many ways, we've walked backwards from what I think in the beginning of the Trump administration had been a focus on pressure. Uh, in the first 18 months of the Trump administration, they sanctioned 156 North Korean entities. That's more than uh, was done in eight years under the Obama administration of 154. Uh, it's not a perfect mat or analogy or uh, metric, but uh, since Singapore, we've only sanctioned, I believe, 15 or so. So there's clearly been a falling off of enforcing our laws since the Singapore summit. Ambassador King or Dr. Terry, do you want to uh, add to that? 
Well, I would just agree that we, I, you know, I'm hard-pressed to say what we have gained um, except remains. We may, and maybe now that we have certain, at least President Trump has established some sort of a personal relationship with Kim. Um, and in theory, I'm also sympathetic to the argument that we should have had that meeting at the highest level because, to be fair, nothing has worked uh, since early 1990s. We've tried bilateral negotiations and agreements, multilateral negotiations and agreements, many working level agreements, and it didn't work out. So it, in theory, it makes sense for two leaders to try it. But again, at the end of the day, it's been now two years uh, since Singapore, and we have not really gained much at all. In fact, I think we have given North Korea some legitimacy. Well, and thank you. And, and that's the reason I asked that, that series of questions, because maximum pressure was working. It was showing results. We were moving in the right direction. You had a global consensus with Russia and China doing more than they ever had together. Uh, and then uh, now we see things that we've given to North Korea, and North Korea continues to ask for things, but North Korea will not show good faith and goodwill. And so it's hard to, to understand why we would move away from maximum pressure when, even when things have been given to North Korea, they fail to provide a, a good faith, excuse me, a good faith uh, return. Uh, so thank you. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Dr. Terry, does it send the right signal to uh, North Korea for the Trump administration to uh, rule out any head of state level engagement this year? If for Trump administration, if they were to rule out, I think it would be giving a right signal to North Korea to say no more um, head of state visit, a meeting summits without making progress. Um, clearly, uh, it, it was really surprising to me when, we, when they actually sat down in Singapore what was produced. I mean, as, you, as you know, what was produced out of Singapore was just an aspirational statement. My colleague Bruce Clino just talked about how we don't even have a definition on denuclearization, what it means. Uh, so again, what we got from Singapore is an aspirational statement. Uh, not much. Again, Hanoi summit has failed, so <coughs> we have not made any kind of progress. So you're what saying is no, more me, no more summits? No more summits some, unless some we concession made by the North Koreans. Do you agree with that, absolutely. Uh, Mr. Klingler? Yes, I do. Uh, you know, I was not in favor of doing a, a top-down approach. I'm more of a traditionalist of having progress at the working level. Uh, but having the summits at least did test the hypothesis that many had said was, if only the U.S. leader would meet with the North Korea leader, all of this would be solved. Uh, We've tried it several times, it, it hasn't worked. Um, so I, I think we should hold in abeyance any additional summits until there is you know, working level talks. But we've only had eight days of talks between the North Koreans and the US since Singapore because North Korea continues to refuse diplomacy. Uh, and do you think that President Trump should make it clear that ballistic missile launches of any length are unacceptable to our country? I believe so. They're all violations uh, of UN resolutions. Now, in the past, there's been sort of a hierarchy of responses by the international community. Nuclear tests, ICBMs have a stronger response than intermediate and others. Uh, but with the 26 that were done, 25 short range, one submarine launch, medium range, all of them are violations. We should have you know, declared that these are counter to not only the UN resolutions, but the spirit of the, the negotiations we are having, uh, that they are threatening our allies and our forces stationed there. They're, North Korea is making progress on additional weapons, uh, and that it would make us rethink our self-imposed restrictions on military exercises and law enforcement. Okay, so Dr. Terry, you know, there was a go big approach in Hanoi. Um, is there something to be said for something that's more modest in terms of a freeze between the United States and North Korea? That's why I said earlier in the written testimony and when what I said earlier, in theory, I would 
I would agree to it. And I, I would say, you know, interim deal is a potential possibility. But again, only if North Korea shows that it's serious about even uh, implementing the uh, interim deal. That's the problem. They, they what, don't what does even it say that they it. haven't even given us an inventory? Right. Of what they, they don't have even yet. give us. So, I mean, that's given the us first step. It should be something Absolutely. that's simple to do. What does it say to us that they won't even take that step, which that doesn't North even Korea relate is not to serious about uh, giving up any part of a uh, nuclear program? So while I'm sympathetic to the argument, why, why not go for an interim deal that at least caps the nuclear missile program, that would at least reduce the threat? The problem is we had multiple agreements with North Korea in the past, and every single time they fell apart over verification. So without declaration, of their inventory without them agreeing to having IAEA inspectors in, we're not going to have that kind of verification. So, which we need. yeah, so uh, Mr. Klingner, his play, Kim's play, is clearly well, look at, they said Pakistan can't have them, and they got, they, they got over that. India can't have nuclear weapons, they got over that. China can't have nuclear weapons, they got over that. They're going to get over this too. So, if that's the plan, and I think it is the plan. Um, isn't an increase in sanctions something that makes it clear that that's not going to be acceptable, the only way in which we can ultimately get them to the table? Or else Donald Trump is setting this thing up for an acceptance of this program without concessions having been made by the North Koreans. North Korean officials have, have told U.S. officials as well as Dr. Terry and I that their goal is to be the Pakistan of Asia. Yeah. Uh, so they, they hope to gain gradual acceptance. Um, you know, there's a good debate amongst uh, Korea watchers as to whether to do a, a freeze or go for the big deal. I would describe it as sort of a 100-yard agreement implemented in five-yard increment or implemented in five-yard increments or a series of 10-yard agreements. I'm more in favor of a, a large agreement where everyone knows the parameters of the agreement and what all the responsibilities are, like the arms control treaties we had with the Soviets. I was head of the CIA arms control staff and served on one of the delegations overseas. Uh, but the, the, with a freeze, all of the agreements we've had so far have been freezes and all failed. Uh, and you know you can't freeze what you can't see. So we do need verification even for a partial agreement. Uh, it would send a bad signal, I think, uh, undermining the non-proliferation treaty. Uh, and it would be accepting the uh, threat to our allies, which yeah. undermines the viability of the U.S. as an ally. Okay, and uh, if I may, on this round, I'll look forward to the next round. Um, let's talk about the coronavirus. It's already moving rapidly through South Korea. Uh, of course, North Korea is called the Hermit Kingdom for a reason, so we really don't know what's going on up there, but it could potentially become a very dangerous uh, uh, place if uh, they don't have a healthcare infrastructure uh, and if the disease is inside of their society. So, Dr. Terry, could you talk a little bit about the coronavirus and North Korea and what concerns you may have? Well, when I was looking into North Korea internal stability situation, working in the intelligence community, one of the key most vulnerable uh, in, in terms of instability situation in North Korea was healthcare. Um, it's non-existent. So if it is true, I mean, right now North Korea is denying that they have anybody of, uh, impacted or anyone with coronavirus, but if it is, if and North Korea has shut down the border with China, but I don't think he can completely block 
people from illicitly going in and out of North Korea. And if, if there are patients with coronavirus, I think this is a significant potential problem in North Korea. Again, dilapidated healthcare infrastructure, it just doesn't exist. Um, so it's a potentially uh, a serious situation with pandemic breaking out. Um, so and are, you are you concerned with that as well, Dr. King? Uh, the one thing that I think we have done that has not contributed is our sanctions on non-government organizations operating in North Korea. It's been very difficult for NGOs to go mm -hmm. to North Korea to be able to put resources mm. in there. Uh, if we're going to help the North Koreans deal with what could be a very serious problem yeah. with coronavirus, we need to allow Americans and uh, uh, others who are involved in, in dealing with this kind of a problem to move stuff there, to go there physically without the kind of obstacles and obstructions that they've faced in doing that. The NGOs play a very important part in the healthcare system in North Korea. Would you make an offer right now of humanitarian aid to North Korea from the United States or UN if they need it? Uh, that would not be inappropriate. I would be careful about making an offer without knowing exactly what might be considered. The main thing we need to make sure is that if we are providing humanitarian assistance, we know what's going in and we know uh, how to monitor where it's being delivered. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, thank you. And just to follow up on Senator Markey's uh, coronavirus question, uh, we had the, uh, the Minister of Defense, uh, Korea, South Korea, in uh, Washington today. Uh, in discussions with him about uh, coronavirus, not only has it and will it affect uh, exercises in South Korea, it has uh, apparently affected North Korea military exercises. Are you, are you picking that up as well? Well, every year the North Korea goes through a winter training cycle. Uh, it's very large. It begins in December. It moves out of garrison in January. It usually culminates in a core level or so exercise in March or April. Uh, last year, General Abrams, our commander on the peninsula, said that it involved a million troops, uh, the, perhaps the largest ever. Uh, I haven't seen leaked intelligence reporting about the, the status this year, but uh, it would be scheduled for this time of year. Uh, but they did cancel a large military ex uh, parade in February. North, North so Korea did. North, North Korea. Korea did. So North Korea may be curtailing its winter training cycle. I just haven't seen information yet. Mm -hmm. yeah, thank you. Uh, Mr. Klingner, you had said that, uh, and I, I'm going to go back to what you said. You said there have only been eight days of talks between uh, North Korea and the United States uh, since the Singapore summit. Is that, is that correct? Is that what you said? Yes, the U.S. officials uh, told me that. Yeah. So Steve Began was appointed as the U.S. Special Representative for North Korea in 2008. Uh, and now he's been sworn in as Deputy Secretary of State, uh, this just a couple months ago. Uh, Alex Wong, the Deputy Special Representative for North Korea, has now been nominated to be the alternate U.S. Representative for Special Political Affairs at the United Nations. Uh, who, who is now leading, uh, who do you look to as leading uh, the administration's North Korea policy? I, I'm uncertain, sir. Uh, I don't know of a, of a point of contact has been uh, designated since Mr. Wong's new uh, position has been announced. Uh, so that has led some to say that the administration is putting North Korea on the back burner. They don't care about North Korea. I, I, I think we do need to put the onus on Pyongyang for being the one that refuses dialogue. I'm sure if they were to say they are willing to come back to working level talks, either Mr. Began or Mr. Wong would uh, gladly show up for, for meetings. But it, it, I think the administration should designate a new point of contact for North Korea. Yeah, thank you. And, and I think that goes to the heart of this question. If, if North Korea, again, is demanding um, relief demanding concessions, uh, yet only willing to negotiate eight days over the past couple of years, failing to return any kind of diplomatic uh, outreach efforts. 
Uh, it's hard to believe that they are serious, as uh, Dr. Terry has said, uh, clearly said that they are not serious. Um, it, the coronavirus, uh, any idea or sense uh, of what South Korea may be planning on, uh, Ambassador King? Have you talked to them at all about uh, any humanitarian efforts from South Korea to North Korea regarding coronavirus? Uh, the South Koreans have been very helpful to North Korea. They've provided substantial assistance in uh, some areas. The sanctions have limited what they're able to do, but I would guess that South Korea would, uh, would have an interest in terms of moving forward on that. I think we should consult with them and make sure that uh, we let them know what our thoughts are in terms of how best to move forward on that. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Klinger, going back to something you had said earlier, too, you talked about uh, an approach uh, to North Korea that might involve a, a bigger, broader uh, sense of, of uh, sort of what a package could look like in terms of bringing some kind of denuclearization effort to them. Um, if you could construct a, a, a package that would uh, abide by U.S. law that would include the provisions of, uh, of the United Nations Security Council uh, resolutions as it relates to North Korea. Uh, could you structure something that would sort of have a, 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 a sweetened pot, so to speak, uh, that would allow North Korea to participate in something like that? So basically it would be a, a measure that would say these are the things you have to achieve to abide by international law. Uh, U.S. law, complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization, and then say this is what you could have if you constructed that kind of a deal, but only if you meet these things. I mean, you talked about the 10-yard approach, the 100-yard approach. Uh, uh, could you construct something like that? Well, it, it's very hard to create a, a, a treaty or an agreement when they won't talk to you. And then uh, even when they had meetings with Mr. Began in Stockholm, uh, they were on receive mode. They, and have we since uh, since Stockholm? This is really hot, Mike. Have we since Stockholm had any kind of a conversation with them? There have been some communications, but I, I don't think North Korea has been forthcoming in doing more than just saying uh, they refuse to have meetings. So, you know, if we could actually get to negotiations, and in a way, we've had eight failed agreements, and we haven't really ever gotten to the real point of negotiating North Korea's actual arsenal. We've only been talking about their production capability. So uh, they have not, you know, talked about the, the arsenal itself. So we need to have, a, a, as we did in arms control treaties, defining all the terms, uh, having a very uh, extensively detailed verification protocol, a destruction protocol, identifying, where, you know, everyone's responsibilities. Uh, and then on the sanctions relief, I, I would see a distinction between the UN sanctions and the US sanctions. UN sanctions are more easily undone by a Security Council vote. Uh, they are more limited to nuclear and missile activity. And in a way, they're more tradable in that because they talk about trade restrictions, you could have parameters of for every five nuclear weapons they give up, they get to export another 100,000 tons of coal or something like that. The US sanctions are much harder to undo. They're law. Congress would have to be involved. Uh, and they relate to things other than just nuclear and missile activity. They relate to human rights. Uh, law enforcement, money laundering, uh, other crimes. So I think they're much harder to undo, and uh, as in sections 401 and 402 of the North Korean Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act, there are a number of areas, including human rights, that North Korea would have to make progress on before U.S. sanctions would be reduced. And there are some that can never be reduced because they're law enforcement. Thank you. Dr. Terry, if you could comment on that, if you, could you construct some kind of a 100-yard agreement, so to speak, that would uh, provide uh, all the accountability or accountability under either UN or U.S. law, I would say both, uh, and yet have a pot sweetened enough that North Korea would agree to it? It would take significant buy-in from Congress. 
Unfortunately, I think we're very long way off from that because, as you know, we don't even have agreed upon definition on what denuclearization means for, as a beginning step. And I'm, I'm truly convinced that Kim Jong-un regime is not interested in any kind of dialogue or negotiation this year. I think they're watching very closely what is happening domestically. This is an election year. Um, and seeing if President Trump will get reelected. Uh, they're buying their time. And for them, I think, it's impossible for them. It's hard to uh, return to negotiation without sanctions relief. Again, I think potential deal is possible with North Korea this year, perhaps before the election, but only if we are ready to give them uh, big sanctions relief. Again, we need a definition. But if I'm envisioning some sort of de on, uh, deal with North Korea, they must be, uh, they must agree to actually definition on denuclearization, what that means, and then provide a declaration, a roadmap of implementation and verification, agreement to a verif verification. In terms of sanctions relief, at least in Hanoi, what we are willing to offer in the beginning was let South Korea get the exemption they need uh, from United Nations to re restart the joint inter-Korea project. There would be the easiest way to start something. Uh, South Korea was looking to uh, work on the, inter the railroad project. South Korea was potentially looking into opening Kaesong. There would be still violation of United Nations Security Council resolution, but there will be something there will be at least a start that's happening from, you know, this, the South Korea is beginning and not, not us. But, but again, you. I think we're just very difficult to get there right now. Thank you. I'll follow up on this line of questioning. Senator Markey. <clears throat> again, thank you. Um, I led a congressional delegation, a senatorial delegation in August of 2017 to Dandong, and I could see the bridge between Dandong and uh, uh, and uh, uh, North Korea, which was clearly a uh, pathway for legal and illegal commerce between the two countries. Is that bridge shut down right now? It's all, all, all of that kind, all of that commerce is now uh, blocked by China. Is that correct? Well, it's right now, I think, shut down because North Korea also asked North Korea, uh, China to shut down or uh, because of the coronavirus. That's what I'm saying to you. Completely, yeah. It's all shut down right now. I believe it is, yeah. The, the only uh, aid that goes in is military aid, or I mean is medical aid, and they do allow it to go through, but only through Dandong. Other areas have been shut down. Okay, everything else has been shut down. Interesting. So, um, and is there significant medical aid going in? It looks to me like China doesn't quite have enough for its own people. Are, are they providing large amounts of medical aid? Are you familiar with that issue? Hard to look down from satellites and determine what's going no, on. No, I appreciate that. <laughs> no, I mean, look, look at what, what President Xi did is really a crime against the public health of the world by waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. We're going to live with the consequences of that uh, for a long, long time. And I actually wish that President Trump had called him on day one and just said, let the World Health Organization in, uh, allow them in. If you want to be a part of the World Trade Organization uh, and receive those benefits, you should. You you should, and you have to allow the World Health Organization to go in because these diseases are transmitted by trade and travel. And uh, and if you think you can, you know, hide the impacts of this, the, the rest of the world will suffer. So um, so it, it's it was a tragic mistake at that moment should have happened. The United States should have been the lead. They should have demanded from Xi uh, a response that uh, allowed for this um, virus to be um, uh, isolated 
very early on uh, to allow the experts of the world to arrive. WHO, they did not do it. That's why I'm asking the questions about North Korea, because they will not have the infrastructure uh, to be able to deal with it. Yes, Mr. Klinger. Um, in the past, when South Korea offered 50,000 tons of rice, North Korea refused it. Um, they've closed their borders. Uh, the, I believe just this week the, the Brits offered humanitarian assistance or medical assistance, and North Korea refused it. Uh, and I think there may have been cases in recent weeks where they turned down uh, offers of humanitarian assistance. Yeah. I, I, I think that Kim is taking the same approach which she took you know, for the first month, and ultimately overconfidence breeds complacency, and complacency breeds disaster. And, uh, and I think, unfortunately, that could uh, be what the pathway is that North Korea follows as well. Now, hopefully they can isolate themselves. Um, that would be good for their people and good for the world, but uh, I am concerned. I'd like to address an unforced <coughs> error by President Trump that uh, Chairman Kim is surely celebrating members of both parties here in Congress value deeply our alliances with South Korea and Japan. In April, Senator Gardner and I co-sponsored a resolution to honor the U.S.-South Korea alliance. Now I see President Trump trying to extort our ally to pay for security that benefits both our countries, demanding that uh, Korea increase its payments by upwards of 400%. I see our military now issuing furlough warnings to almost 9,000 civilian South Korean employees who support our troops. If that was not insulting enough, President Trump at a political rally last week disparaged the cultural contributions of South Koreans. Uh, Dr. Terry, Mr. Klingner, how are these actions perceived by the leadership and people in South Korea, and how can the United States encourage burden sharing without an all-out shakedown of our allies in East Asia? Um, it, it's hit very hard in South Korea. Um, the conservative media in South Korea, which is usually very strong supporters of the alliance, have, have called into question uh, the continued viability of the U.S. as an ally. Uh, the conservative legislators in the National Assembly have, have also raised the same concern that these demands could trigger a resurgence of anti-Americanism. Uh, there are polls in South Korea which show very, very strong support for the alliance. Uh, but very strong resistance to the kind of increases that the U.S. is, is demanding. Um, in December of last year, Dr. Terry and I, along with our counterpart at Brookings, uh, Dr. Jung Park, wrote a, a joint op-ed in the Los Angeles Times arguing against uh, the U.S. position on seeking exorbitant increases in our cost sharing. Uh, the three largest think tanks in the U.S. arguing against this position. So I think that was hopefully an indication of how uh, the broad spectrum of, of experts and I think officials also see the need for seeing alliances as shared values and uh, goals, not money-making operations. Beautiful. Thank you. Dr. Terry. I think it's some 96% of the South Korean public is opposed to the uh, President Trump's demands, um, and it's really straining the alliance relationship. Um, I think what South what what we should encourage is what South Koreans are saying um, that we should encourage their enhancement of South Korea's own defense capabilities, Japan's capabilities. They're willing to spend uh, more money. We know that South Korea is a top customer of U.S. Uh, foreign military sales. Uh, 
they're, they're paying some 75% of their foreign defense purchases coming from the United States. We should encourage that effort. Um, right now, there's also three categories of this uh, in, in terms of a burden sharing. There's labor for the Koreans, there's uh, who work in the U.S. bases, and logistics, and construction of U.S. facilities. And the South Koreans are saying, well, let's, before these South Korean workers get followed, why don't we at least deal with that. So I think you can make modest increase here. We know that South Koreans have made an 8% increase last year in the last year's agreement. So if we can work with that with a modest increase and let South Korea spend money, but not necessarily on this burden sharing issue, but again on uh, purchasing U.S. military assets, on them doing more on um, anti-piracy operations. I think there is some room for flexibility here. I think pre President Trump's demands is excessive, and there's a National Assembly election that's yeah, coming hey, up. What, what, so what's the date of the election? Uh, April 15th. April 15th. April 15th. And President Moon is just not in a position to make this kind of deal. And even if there is a, if even if he uh, agrees to U.S.'s demands, it's not going to pass by the National Assembly because it has to pass by the National Assembly in South Thank Korea. You. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. Just to uh, you go back to 2016 to 2017, the, secure, the Security Council resolutions uh, at the United Nations targeted many areas, trade and fuels, access to banking, size of diplomatic missions, and shipping. Um, I think next month the United Nations Security Council is going to be uh, releasing a 67-page report uh, on the, the United Nations Security Council North Korea Sanctions Committee. Uh, that 67-page report is uh, going to be released next month. It states that much of the illegal coal exports and refined petroleum imports were conducted via ship-to-ship -ship transfers between uh, DPRK-flagged vessels and Chinese barges. Uh, we've talked about the 300 sanctions that have not been, have been recommended but not been implemented. The White House has taken no action against a dozen Chinese banks that Congress recommended be sanctioned for their dealings with Pyongyang and even reversed the Treasury Department's sanctions on two Chinese shipping firms. Uh, Mr. Klingner, you went through a number of individuals that we failed. Uh, Dr. Terry, how would you recommend that we begin rolling out these sanctions if you think that's uh, appropriate? Should we uh, just uh, start implementing immediately the 300 sanctions that we have not so far? Should we, uh, is that something you would recommend? We should be implementing the law. I think we should, what we need to focus on enforcing the sanctions, as I mentioned earlier in my testimony. Um, and there's many ways to just continue to implement, right? And there's another issue with China and Russia, as you've seen, are also relaxing sanctions. Um, they're not implementing in full force, as we've seen in the fall of 2017. Uh, there are all kinds of reports out there, um, including the, the laborers um, and um, allowing ship-to-ship -ship transfers. Um, so I think right now the focus, instead of, I don't know, about rolling out the new entities, new designations, just beginning with implementation of sanctions. I think should be the beginning. Mr. Klingner? You know, I, I was critical of the previous administration for what I called timid incrementalism in enforcing sanctions, uh, where law enforcement really had been negotiable, where uh, it's as if the, the mayor of a city uh, is told by the, the police commissioner that he has evidence for 100 bank robbers he could arrest tomorrow. And the mayor says, I will be bold against crime, and I want you to arrest five for every time another bank is uh, robbed. Well, if you have the evidence, why are you holding back? So, you know, you can make a case of, of holding it in abeyance in order to get them back to the negotiating table. Well, we've been trying that for over a decade, uh, it, and it hasn't worked. I tend to believe 
you know, the, the adage of justice is blind. If you have the evidence, you should go after those that are violating U.S. laws, particularly those that are in uh, violations of the U.S. financial system. Ambassador King. Uh, Mr. Chairman, one of the things that I think has been unfortunate is that we have denigrated the role of the United Nations in a lot of this. Uh, North Korea has, is far more dependent on China, far more dependent on Russia than they are on the United States. And we have tried to use unilateral sanctions to move forward on these issues. And there are some things we can do to encourage Chinese banks and Chinese institutions to uh, do what we'd like to see them do. We're not doing enough in terms of our diplomacy. We're not doing enough to press the Chinese, to urge the Chinese to move in that direction. Our downgrading the United Nations has not helped in terms of our ability to do that. Uh, huge amount of trade, 80 to 90% of the trade that goes to North Korea goes through China. And we're trying to control sanctions, we're trying to impose sanctions when we're not the ones that are involved in sending them, uh, sending the materials that we're sanctioning. I think we need to spend a lot more effort in terms of upgrading what we do through the United Nations and making that much more effective. We have a new uh, UN ambassador in New York, not a member of the cabinet. Uh, this is not a, a positive sign in terms of how we ought to move forward. Ambassador, with the, the workers, uh, Russia and China was supposed to uh, repatriate, uh, so to speak, uh, back to North Korea. Uh, Russia, there have been reports that they may have gotten around uh, some of that uh, return uh, by reclassifying visas as educational visas or tourist visas. Do you have an idea of what percentage that could represent of the workers that were either in Russia or China? I think that's a minor way of doing it. Uh, these are countries that have no problems at all with violating the law and doing what they want to. If they keep them there, they will keep them there. There are some efforts to make progress in that direction, but again, we've got to work more closely di diplomatically with those countries to press them. Uh, China and, and Russia have no interest in seeing North Korea with nuclear weapons, and if we can work the effort diplomatically, there are a lot of ways that we can move forward on that, but we've got to strengthen our efforts in the UN. Thanks, Ambassador. Uh, Dr. Cherry, uh, Mr. Klingner, uh, we talked a little bit about this, uh, different ways forward, path forwards with, with North Korea. Um, some people have talked about recently a freeze on North Korea's nuclear weapons program, ICBM production. Um, some argue that the United States should abandon the, the expectations of total denuclearization, accept a cap on North Korea's arsenal, um, and uh, sort of keep a status quo in place. Others argue that a production freeze would be an interim step toward eventual denuclearization. Um, is, could you talk a little bit about your opinion on this freeze for freeze idea, if you would, Mr. Klingner? I, I talked about some of the aspects, and it's, I mean, it's a debate amongst uh, Korea watchers, and, and some have said it's unrealistic to think North Korea will ever denuclearize, so therefore abandon it and just accept capping the, the problem. Uh, others will say it's, it's an interim step towards eventual denuclearization. Um, you know, I'm more comfortable, as I said before, with an agreement where you've defined the, the end zone, because uh, if you don't define the end point, you're not likely to get there. Uh, so I, I'm more comfortable with clearly delineated responsibilities for, for all the parties. Um, you know, a freeze would be less than it's already required to do under the 11 resolutions, uh, as well as U.S. law. Uh, it, we've tried freezes. They failed. All eight agreements were in some form or another a freeze. Um, you would need to still have on-site inspection. Uh, because you can't verify, you know, you can't freeze what you can't see. Uh, and, you know, one provision of that would be short notice challenge inspections of non-declared facilities. 
Uh, and it, it may be an acceptance of North Korea as a nuclear power uh, that is, remains a threat to our allies, if not the United States itself. Dr. Terry. So I think one of the greatest risks of, of, of such a deal is that um, it will not lead to denuclearization, but it will lead to North Korea being accepted as a nuclear weapons power, which we talked about earlier. That is North Korea's main goal, uh, is to is sort of to follow the Pakistan model. So I think there is a risk also, I'm just gonna, there's also risk of once we accept that, that North Korea is a nuclear weapons power. What is the risk? There's, we have risk of regional proliferation, right? South Korea is not always going to be under progressive government. Um, hardliners in South Korea already talk about bringing tactical nuclear weapons back in Seoul or potentially going nuclear. So we have to worry about South Korea potentially going nuclear in the future, Japan going potentially nuclear in the future. So there is a serious regional proliferation risk. Um, never mind that I still think it's going to be hard to get to an, an interim deal with verification. Every deal fell apart in the past over verification. Thank you. Uh, Senator Markey. Uh, <clears throat> thank you again, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, these, uh, on Friday, um, I understand that Red Cross received a UN sanctions exemption to send 10,000 test kits, 10,000 pairs of gloves, and 4,000 masks into North Korea. Um, Ambassador King, uh, what are currently the most difficult obstacles for legitimate humanitarian organizations to overcome if they want to help North Korea. I'm especially interested how you prioritize the following barriers, travel restrictions for individual humanitarian workers, restrictions on goods or components of those goods that need to be transferred into North Korea to, to complete humanitarian projects, but especially here with coronavirus, and three, restrictions on dealing with sanctioned North Korean individuals in the course of legitimate humanitarian work. So if we were to go in, or we would want to go in, the world would want to go in, how do you evaluate these obstacles? Uh, the biggest hammer the U.S. has in terms of enforcing these kind of sanctions uh, is our banking system. It's very difficult for anyone to pay for goods to be sent to North Korea uh, because of the way we, uh, we control those uh, uh, transactions. Uh, I'd say that's that's number one. Uh, travel for Americans is fairly difficult. It's not that much of a problem for others, although North Korea is not welcoming people right now because of the coronavirus problem. Travel is a problem because people need to be on the ground and know how their aid is being used and provide technical assistance in terms of how to use it, <coughs> but also the reassurance that it's being used properly and, and going to the right, the right persons that are in need. Uh, in terms of goods and components, there are problems in terms of shipping materials in just because of the sanctions, and we need to work to uh, make sure that these kind of things uh, can be done and can be sent in. Thank you. Uh, so we need to both pressure uh, and, and uh, engage to make diplomatic uh, progress, and that's why Senator Gardner and I worked together to reintroduce the LEAD Act. It aims to close yawning gaps in sanctions enforcement, including by empowering other countries to better detect evasion. We were motivated by warnings from the UN panel of experts on North Korea that even a year ago, there were severe deficiencies in the global pressure campaign, including, quote, a massive increase in illegal ship-to-ship -ship transfers of petroleum products and coal. Press reports suggest that this year's forthcoming panel of experts report is unlikely to inspire any confidence in the sanctions regime. Yet despite longstanding evidence of deficiencies, 
the Trump administration has failed to adapt its enforcement. In fact, pressure has dropped off considerably. In 2018, the Trump administration added to our sanctions uh, a list a total of 116 companies, individuals, and vessels. That same number in 2019, only 13 new individuals and companies. That's an 88% drop from 2018 and far below 2015 and 2016 uh, levels. So given that we know North Koreans are skilled at sanctions evasion and adaptation, wouldn't we expect that a functioning pressure campaign would involve regularly listing new people, front companies, and vessels involved in that evasion? Uh, Mr. Klingman. Very much so. Uh, sanctions enforcement is a bit like you know a bucket uh, of water with a hole in the uh, or a hole in it. Whereas North Korea you know has entities sanctioned, they simply shift to another entity like a criminal organization. <coughs> so you have to keep putting more water in just to keep even at the same level. Um, so you know when I think of how we the U.S. imposed I believe seven or nine billion dollars in fines on British and French banks for money laundering for Iran. We've so far imposed zero dollars in fines on any Chinese bank for money laundering uh, for North Korea. So you know, the four largest banks in the, in the world, which are Chinese, may be too large to identify as a primary money laundering concern, but they can have significant fines imposed on them. And other Chinese banks, if they're found to be uh, complicit with North Korea, uh, they can be identified as money laundering concerns. We have not done that. Um, you know, on uh, shipping, we could um, do what the uh, Southern District uh, of New York uh, prosecutors are doing to the wise, honest uh, ship, or a seized, forfeited, and sold for scrap. We can do that to other ships uh, by North uh, of North Korea or China. Uh, we can go after those shipping companies. In March of 2019, we sanctioned two Chinese shipping companies, even though we knew much more were in violation, and then we reversed Thank that you. action. No, I see the direction you're going, and we, I think Senator Gardner and I agree. Um, just for the panel, if you can, quickly, yes or no, do you agree that military action is not an appropriate response to new North Korean tests or technological advances? Um, um, Ambassador King? Now, military action doesn't usually lead to productive kind of things, and we don't need to get something started like that in North Korea. Good, thank you. Uh, Dr. Terry, Dr. Park at Brookings and I wrote another op-ed uh, two years ago arguing against preventive attack. We should always have retaliatory or preemptive options, but not a preventive attack option. But if there is a new North Korean test or technological advance, would you consider that to be something that would justify an actual military attack? I, I don't think we should do a military attack to prevent North Korea from completing a program that they likely already have completed. Okay, uh, no, that, that's, that's beautifully um, uh, stated. And you agree with that, Dr. Terry? I just I, want to move on. Yes, you agree I agree. With that? I agree. Okay, good. Thank you. I'm just trying to wrap up here because the roll call is going to go off. Just finish up with you, Dr. King. Um, the. Uh, uh, under your leadership, the United States was able to add North Korea's human rights record to the UN uh, Security Council agenda, having worked through the UN uh, <coughs> uh, Human Rights Council to launch a commission of inquiry in 2013. While the Council is rightly concerned about North Korea's weapons of mass destruction programs, should the United States also use it as a forum to raise human rights issues as we did through 2017? Absolutely. There's no question that human rights does threaten peace and security. It's an appropriate topic for the UN uh, Security Council to take up. 
uh, I would hope the Security Council will continue to take that up. The United States needs to be involved with the UN on these human rights activities. We need to be a member of the uh, uh, Human Rights Council. We need to be active in the uh, General Assembly on pressing these issues. Wonderful, wonderful panel, Mr. Chairman. Yes, and thank you, Senator Markey, for your participation today. Thanks to all of you for attending today's hearing and the witnesses for providing your testimony and responses. For the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, including for members to submit questions for the record. Kindly ask the witnesses to respond as promptly as possible, and your responses will be made a part of the record. With the thanks of this committee, hearing is now adjourned.